Listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast, where we explore traditional tabletop and live action role playing games through the lens of horror. A special thank you to our Patreons for helping make this podcast possible. Settle in, Thin Bloods, grab a drink in your favorite set of dice, and let the darkness consume you. Hey everyone, this is Mark, otherwise known as Marcosius, and today's episode is from Deep in the Vaults, from the Before Times. Before the pandemic, back in December of 2019, we had Matthew Dawkins on our Twitch stream. We talked a lot about Cults of the Blood Gods, which was in full Kickstarter mode at the time of recording. Um, And we also talked about Cults, Call of Cthulhu, Solemn Vale, and of course, they came from beneath the sea and they came from beyond the grave. So enjoy the conversation, and make sure you check out our shop for awesome horror-themed TTRPG gear in our shop at GehennaGaming.Threadless.com. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everyone, and good evening or good afternoon, depending on where you are located. Uh, Welcome to our Gehenna Gaming interview. Uh, Today, we are joined by the gentle gamer himself, gentleman gamer, sorry, Matthew Dawkins. So um, Mm. thank you very much for joining us. Um, My pleasure. Of course, beyond your work on Cults of the Blood Gods, you've been working on several other games recently, including They Came From Beneath the Sea, which I heard on the most recent Pathcast, we can expect an announcement regarding at Midwinter, Mm -hmm. which I am personally very excited about. Um, And then, of course, there's also the upcoming folk horror RPG that you worked on, Solemn Veil by Dirty Vortex, uh, which we briefly discussed last time you joined us, and I did not get a chance to pick your brain about, so I'm definitely going to this time. Um, so thank you, Thank you for joining us. Um, so I know that we just hyped up Cults of the Blood Gods and talked about that, and that was obviously the point of this interview, but I would like to open up by asking you about the other highly anticipated V5 book you recently worked on, Chicago by Night. Um, oh, good. Specifically, the Chicago Folios and Let the Streets Run Red. Um, Mm. And I know you mentioned recently that there's some updates there um, talking a little bit about the different scenarios and ideas that went into Let the Streets Run Red. And I wanted to pick your brain a little bit. Uh, What updates do we have on their status, as well as um, if we could talk a little bit about one scenario in particular, the uh, rural horror scenario with the, I believe, Harvest God that you've mentioned. Mm. Okay, well, so I'll start with Chicago Folios, because Chicago Folios is, uh, well, well, in fact, interesting story. Uh, so Chicago Folios, like Let the Streets Run Red, was a book that was uh, in part funded by the Kickstarter for Chicago by Night. And it was the one with, I guess, the loosest brief. Uh, I pitched it, I outlined it, but I was quite happy for the writers of that book to be a bit creative with with what they did. And it's a book that has surprised me by how positive I feel about it, (laughs) which might sound a bit odd, 
but it's uh, it's a book that has surprisingly hung together despite being a bit of a chaotic uh, creation process. And chaos isn't always a bad thing in in creation. Uh, just ask a werewolf. But in in the case of Chicago folios, the sheer number of story hooks, interesting characters, the fact that we've got new blood sorcery rituals in it as well, the fact that it expands a lot of the interesting lore in Chicago by night, but also uh, addresses many of the cities surrounding Chicago, towns and cities, uh, is a really, has really made me feel impressed as, as we're seeing Chicago folios get closer and closer to release because all the art for that book is now in. It's a book that is just being laid out now. So soon I'll be proof. In fact, I have already proofed the first two chapters. Yes. Uh, so yeah, it's um, that one's coming along very nicely. Let the streets run red is the bigger of the two Chicago by night stretch goal books. And in fact, I, I would say it's larger than we ever planned which is a good thing uh, no, we don't often yeah we how, many, don't how often. many pages do we are we looking at uh, so i don't do things in pages but in terms <laughs> of word count it's around 125 250,000, which is much wow. larger than than we spec'd out i'm uh, sorry rich if rich <laughs> thomas is watching this apologies it was not my intention um but it has really helped to give the various stories in this book a chance to breathe, that's given them depth, that's given them uh, lots of options for exploration so that they're not just linear A to Bs. And that's very important for me when I'm developing a book with, uh, with stories or chronicles in that they have to... They have to give players freedom. Vampire the Masquerade, probably more than most RPGs, is a game that is very difficult to write scenarios for because it's so character-driven. You, you're never just going to be going around as a party, uh, you know, as a block, uh, yeah. achieving this task, this task, this task, and well done, the mission is complete. You all have your own personal drives. But the scenarios in Let the Streets Run Red, all four of them, to my mind, do an excellent job of not only accounting for the existential plot, but also for personal plots at the same time. Um, but you specifically asked about the plot setting Millington, Illinois. Yes. Which is a story where your characters are sent to this rural uh, rural town in the cornfields of Illinois, <laughs> and maybe getting a bit lost on the goblin roads on the way to or from there, uh, which were introduced in Beckett's Jihad Diary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know me, I like connectivity. I like things uh, to connect between books, even if they span editions. Well, as, as and, a lore fiend, it's, it's greatly appreciated that you do that. Thank you. Because, ah, I mean, especially going back to Beckett's, that's pretty cool. Uh, well, this is a... Um, 
a story where you are following up on the disappearance of a vampire. Uh, you are looking for a messenger who was supposed to be carrying something of importance for the prince mm. to another domain. And we suspect they went missing around here on the map. And here mm. is this small town of Millington, Illinois. And I don't want to ruin too much for the people who will eventually run this or play it. But it becomes apparent fairly early on that the almost the entire population of Millington is a willing herd. Mm. They are all willing uh, vessels for wow. the few vampires in the town. But even beyond that, the vampires are potentially willing cultists or sacrifices for something greater, something more dire that sleeps in the fields. Now... Uh, here's an interesting thing. Initially, when we were initially sort of specking this scenario out, we were thinking, okay, you could have a Methuselah in the cornfield, you could have a Vampire of the Camarilla here, a Vampire of the Anarchs here, or a few, a coterie for one, a coterie for the other, uh, and some randoms wandering around as well. But what we found especially through red lines, uh, what, that's part of the development process, and development, especially when I had to just get hold of this scenario and sort of hammer it down into shape, was, one, there were far too many vampires there. Two, the Methuselah in the fields, or Methuselah in the lake, or Methuselah in a cave, or wherever the hell the Methuselah is, has been played out. Yeah. Yeah. So the Harvest God is something slightly different. Huh. Again, I'm not going to clarify at this point, but the scenario has a deliberate Wicker Man, Children of the Corn feel Fantastic. to it, where uh, on one hand, everyone in the community loves you. On the other, they can just turn on you and <laughs> they, they want your blood, you know, or well, rather they want a vampire's, they're not ghouls. They want your, um, they want your life essence. They want your existence to be snuffed out for some greater purpose or for you to protect them from various other outsiders. So it's very, it's, uh, it's very folk horror. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, intentionally. So let the streets run red is a book i um i feel very proud of the the work that the writers put into this one it's unlike any other vampire book i can think of that was released prior to i guess revised well no I, um yeah other than blood bond succubus club sorry so from first edition second edition you've got some books that are just books full of scenarios but even then, those scenarios were pretty damn linear. Let the Streets Run Red, to my mind, is the first book that really introduces uh, deep, involved stories that you can do a hell of a lot with. And I think each of them delivers for a different, uh, different way. The first story is very intimate, very mortal-focused. The second one is very cultish, very folk horror-like. The third one is very much about travel and hierarchy and the differences between uh, Camarilla and Anarch politics, specifically to focus on two rather alien domains. They break the, the norm of the, the Prince, Primogen, Sheriff, Harpies structure, or even the Baron and whatever their underlings would be called, Lieutenant's structure. 
Milwaukee and Indianapolis in that scenario are very different to how people might expect Carola and Anarch Domains to be. And then you have the traditional scenario, which is set in Gary, Indiana. It's got politics, it's got um, blood feuds, it's got a mystery around it. So there's something for everyone in that book. And going back to kind of threading in um, you know, other, other projects and threading in, you know, other works like you did between Chicago, um, Chicago by night and Chicago folios. It sounds like there's some threading between cults of the blood gods and, and this one. Yeah. Um, and with Chicago folios as well. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, some of that was unintended, uh, in fact, but most of it wasn't, uh, most of it we planned and, or, I, we, because I don't always have the same writers on every project, but sometimes I do. And sometimes a writer will ask me, can I have this character appear or can I follow up on this plot? And usually I'll say, yeah, go for it, unless it's yeah. a bit uh, self-serving. Mm. But I, as a developer, find it's one of the most important things. I've said it in a few interviews. I may have said it in our last one. But one of the most important things to me as a writer or as a developer is to give readers the sense of satisfaction that they have uncovered or unlocked a mystery that they have discovered a connection um and becca's jihad diary is very good for that because you oh, yeah. read through it and if you are a fan of vampire or even if you've just touched on vampire whenever you read a part of it and it makes something go off in your head and you think hang on, I recognize that character, I recognize that event, or I've been to this city before. It makes the reader feel a small sense of euphoria because they think, ah, I'm smart, or, oh, I've worked it out. <laughs> uh, nostalgia is good like that, and right. reminiscence is good like that. So if I can keep doing it, it without leaning too much on the past, you get satisfaction for the established fan base who want all that connectivity and you have satisfaction for the new players who don't need it to be tied in uh, inextricably to first edition to have uh, great meaning that's a really cool uh i don't want to call it a trick because almost cheap cheapens <laughs> it but it's a, but it's a really cool tool to utilize i mean even for um for uh, storytellers and and um, even players kind of integrating signature characters or story seeds that they've read in, in you know, uh, scenario books or, or supplements um, kind of helps to make them feel attached and, and part of the, the world of darkness at large. So you kind of taking that as a tool to help kind of build and enhance upon these stories that all of the writers and game developers are putting together is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something you've got to kind of handle with care because yeah. I would say it can run the risk of being self-serving it's yeah, the reason yes yeah, the reason i don't i've not uh, statted up roger de camden or i've not done a roger de camden law sheet the character following the videos i did on the world of darkness channel in advance of v5's release when it when the when the connection became made with uh, with viewers saying, oh, he's playing Roger de Camden, he's playing Mithras's Seneschal, because he's been playing a Cappadocian all this time, and now he's talking about Mithras as being his prince, boom, he's Roger de Camden. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was playing Lord Camden at the Convention of Thorns LARP that same year. Uh, I, th I think it was that same year, maybe been the year before. Uh, people 
made that connection so that character is kind of connected or associated with me at this point. I didn't create the character. That character was invented in, I think, Clan but Cappadocian before he was introduced in the Giovanni Chronicles. But anyway, um, that means I don't really want to be the person to stat him up or make a law sheet for him because if he is weak, people will wonder why I'm making him weak. And if he is overpowered, people will think I'm kind mm. of inserting a Drizzt word and Elminster, uh, you know, someone with plot armor because he's my character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah, you do have to be careful with it. So let's let's I want to I want to return back to Cult of the Blood Gods because right now it's my current obsession. Um, so Good. we've, <laughs> I, we've Just been, a bit. yeah, exactly. Well, especially with all of these updates that we've been getting um, as as Kickstarters, um, you know, as backers, we, we're getting you know these wonderful you know fully fleshed out previews, and there's really quite a lot of content for everybody to read, um, and quite a lot of features of of each one of these cults, but. There are a few cults that that have not yet been released um, that are probably in st still in development, like the the Society of Peaceful Night or the um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna screw this one up, but the the Heos de Sea or de Sea, mm -hmm. um, de yeah, and then um, and then maybe the uh, maybe the Bali. <laughs> <laughs> Ask, asking for a friend, asking for a friend. Yeah, that that would be. Uh... Uh, that would be a big thing. Uh, I can tell you that right now, uh, the Bali are not in the book, and that's uh, from on high. <laughs> yeah, uh, fair so that's fr from Paradox. Mm -hmm. uh, we have been asked not to incorporate the Bali in any of our books at this time, and there's a there's a reason for that. Yeah. Um, but it isn't just because they hate the Bali or anything silly like that. <laughs> there's um, there's a design reason for it. Yeah. So, that so yeah, the Bali sense. are not in cults of the blood gods. I know, I know. <laughs> but you, you do have, but you do have Church of Cain. You do have the mm -hmm. Church of Cain, and yep. that's okay. Um, but before we get into to those guys, because I know that there's a there's a little bit of, a, of an influence uh, from Bali to to Church of Cain, just a little bit from from. I guess this is probably more my perspective. Um, <laughs> but I'd like to maybe I don't know if you want to release a little bit more information on some of the cults that we haven't heard about yet that will definitely be in it. Hmm. Let's think. So the the cults that haven't been profiled at this point, I think all of them are now. You're not going to be getting any other major cults from memory. Uh, so it, written up in the set to the same volume as the ones you've re seen already in the manuscript, other than the Hecata, of course. Uh, so, but that means you still get a page or two on cults like the like Gorgo's Nest, the Eyes of Malachi, the Servitors of Irad, the oh. Menelaeans, the I think it's the Sons and Daughters of Helena. Uh, yep. And oh, there's there's quite a few lost hijos to see as well. Uh, which, if you're looking for a drowned legacy connection, that's probably where you'll find it. Uh, people do seem to like that uh, little invention for Beckett's <laughs> Jihad Diary. Yeah. Um, uh, well, that, that's a whole story uh, that one day I'll go through in an interview. Uh, the drowned legacies, but uh, yeah, there's quite a few that are still in there um as oh the amaranthan um, amaranthians as well or amaranthans um 
So one of my favorites is The Eyes of Malachi, which is a very much a minor cult. It's not a cult you choose to join. <laughs> uh, one could even compare it, and this was not by design, to the Malkavia illness in Vampire the Requiem, where essentially Malkavians in in this in v5 can be switched on and they suddenly join the eyes of malachi <laughs> and what that means is they they don't all just become homicidal raging uh, lunatics or anything like that uh, they start serving a very very old vampire and start serving her will presumably her will and uh, doing some horribly debilitative t things to other vampires in the domain it isn't a cult i could see many player characters joining but it is like a massive murder cult and suicide cult where the malkavians that join it really have very little choice and of course you'll have some vampires who are trying to free hmm. the vampires from the eyes of malachi um, but you'll have others who are desperately trying to put these uh, vampires down. Yeah, the reason I like the Eyes of Malachi is because I do think antagonist factions are very valuable in games. There should always be something to rail against. And eventually we are going to see the Sabbat as a playable faction. I mean, right now they're not even in the game as much of an antagonistic faction because they're just not on the map. Yeah. But one day the Sabbat will be back. But when you have more elemental forces of destruction, like the Eyes of Malachi, it gives it gives you the excuse for what I call the sort of He-Man Christmas special, uh, where <laughs> He-Man and Skeletor have to team up to fight against Hordak, that kind of thing. Yeah, kind of so, like the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation. Exactly. So I like the idea that if you've got a coterie serving the eyes of Malachi in your domain, that's one of the few things that's going to make a the Camarilla sheriff the uh, an art. Uh, well, what would it be? A Templar of the Sabbat and some burly anarch brute who goes without a title because he's an anarch come to the table and say, "Well, we need to." put our beefs aside and actually deal with this threat because they're going to wipe all of us out irrespective of what we mm. believe and why we've been feuding. Um, it doesn't mean they're more powerful. It just means they are a bigger nuisance and a greater threat to all kinds of things like masquerade, humanity. Uh, so, yeah, I enjoy cults like that or I enjoy groups like that in pretty much all games. I think that there should always be a place for pure antagonists. That's... Uh, I, I like that a lot. That's actually um, frequently how I use not to circle back around to them, but the Bali. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's a good place that they ha have held in a lot of uh, vampire lore, but also a suggestion for how they can be worked in in a way that makes sense, but I won't, I won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I think... Uh... So the, the end point for a lot of vampires, and you didn't see it too much in editions prior to V5, is the becoming a white, uh, where you yeah. fall to the beast and you are just a beast at that point. Oddly, mm -hmm. there are very few books that have these vampires in. Mm -hmm. Let the Streets Run Red has a few uh, whites in it, mm -hmm. and 
I like the eyes of Malachi for another reason. They are, for all intents and purposes, vampires that should be whites, but there is something, someone up above them, controlling them, preventing them from falling to that state. They're, they're constantly being sort of teased on that edge of humanity zero and pulled back every single time. That doesn't mean they're suddenly acting humane. It just means there is something preventing them from letting go. Um, they, they are valuable to that vampire, Malachi, one would assume, as near, uh, well, near unrepentant, psychotic beasts. That's fantastic. I know you, you had mentioned them briefly on the, the World of Darkness 5th Discord server, um, and I was, I'm was i very excited to read more about them. Uh, Excellent. It won't be long, I'm sure. <laughs> Excellent. Um, speaking of some of the other clans and uh, some of the information that has been in the previews, um, the rituals that a lot of the cults, not clans, cults, I apologize, um, ha- are demonstrating are pretty unique and uh, tapping into stuff that we haven't seen in any of the other v5 books so far and i was wondering um specifically with respect to the church of cain what inspired uh the direction that you took with those rituals so the church of cain's rituals for anyone who's unfamiliar are very much leaning back into the lure of flames uh, but they are not the lure of flames as you knew them in previous editions. Uh, it's very much a hard direction for V5 that blood sorcery as a discipline is just a one to five dot blood sorcery. It's not one to five dots lure of flames, one to five dots path of leaven, but one to five dots all the rest. It's just blood sorcery. Anything else, blood sorcery rituals are rituals. And the Church of Cain has a Law of Flames uh, set of rituals. It's not one to five. I think they may have a one, two, and four, but um, it's been a while since I've read the manuscript. Um, Now, why does the Church of Cain get that? Why not the Tremere? Why not anyone else? And for one thing, I'll say the big caveat that any storyteller and any player can take the powers from any chapter in any book and make a justification for why their character has them. Mm -hmm. They always have, they always will, and I do not frown upon that at all. If they're wanting some kind of official permission for their Tremere to have these Lure of Flames rituals, you have it. Just speak to your storyteller about it and come up with a reason. Now, beyond that, why in-game does the Church of Cain have these? Well, the Church of Cain is a very interesting group for me because they are not nodists. They're not on the path of Cain as we once knew it. They are not the Sabbat's Catholic Church because the Sabbat is very much based around this anti-Catholic, this inverted Catholic church, uh, where instead of having a Pope, of course, they have a regent, but otherwise they they have bishops, they have archbishops, they have cardinals, and they follow various rites and they pervert various sacraments that are very sim- symbolically similar to the Catholic Church now and their practices. Uh, the Church of Cain is the Cainite heresy. And to know the Cainite heresy, you do have to be fairly familiar with Vampire the Dark Ages. There was a book surrounding the Cainite heresy. But the key thing here is the Cainite heresy 
They believe Cain was an angel. They believe that Earth is hell. They believe that all vampires have the possibility of being these fellow angels of murder and ascending from hell to a different layer of hell, or maybe even to heaven. Uh, so they are Gnostic. They are a Gnostic cult, uh, and much the same as Gnostic Christianity. And they were wiped out not that far away from when the Cathars probably the last arguable Gnostics, uh, everyone was considered a Gnostic if they weren't Catholic at the time, were wiped out in the 13th century in the case of the Church of Cain. Now, around 200 years later, you have the Sabbat path of Cain appearing. And this is where the path of Cain doesn't necessarily come up with or path of Cain's nodists followers don't all necessarily come up with a catholic hierarchy but they are popping up around the same time as the sabbat is forming and it's interesting that with all the la sombra on the path of Cain and all the la sombra in the sabbat and the fact that the la sombra led the charge that eliminated the church of Cain, the gnostics in the 13th century they suddenly start emulating parts of the Church of Cain within the Sabbat. So you end up having the Sabbat Church and the Cainite heresy, as they would be referred to by their enemies being the Sabbat Church. Anything, Any reference historically would be to this heretical movement that was wiped out, despite the similarities. So now the Church of Cain is back, and they are unhappy with how the Sabbat have treated them. Uh, after all, Gnostics and Catholics, one is a heresy, one is not, uh, from one perspective to the other. And to get to the point, why they have the fire-based powers? Well, we, I like to think of how the Sabbat first came up with the idea of doing things like rituals of fire-walking how this Sabbat initially came up with all the retail that related to basically uh, trying to not insult, but say, I am bigger than my curse. I am more powerful than, than Cain. I am more powerful than God. And that kind of defiance was also present in the Church of Cain or the Cainite heresy way back when. So giving them power over fire, over this intrinsic weakness of being a vampire, uh, really felt important to me because it was their way of flouting their curse, their way of saying, I am more than the other vampires around me yeah. because while you are still afraid of this candle yeah. or this lamp, I am able to wreathe my arms in flame and not be shaken because I am an angel of murder and you are just a parasite until you join the church of Cain you will never understand the sabbat ended up doing similar things to prove your worthiness of being a member of the sabbat you had to walk over hot coals or jump yeah. through bonfires things like that yeah overcome uh, the rush shrek exactly so to get to the point I know it's been a very long time coming I think that having the Church of Cain have power over fire is very appropriate for them thematically because they are, they believe they are angels. They believe that they are more than their fellow vampires. But I think that having that fire connection between Church of Cain and 
the Knights of the Sabbat is also very important because it means an outsider is looking at both faiths and is thinking, well, which one is right? Because they both have this fire obsession. They both have this obsession with Cain as their founder. Why aren't they getting along? What is it that forces them to be apart? And ultimately, it's like any other split between denominations of Christianity, whether it's Catholics and Protestants, or whether it's Catholics and Gnostics, or Evangelists and Baptists, whatever. Um, they believe in fundamentally the same principles, but they diverge at a certain point and can never reconnect. One of them has to be right, and that means the other one of them is heresy and needs to be wiped out. Well, that's very, I mean, that's very in line with, with just religious history in general. Um, there's always, with, with any either large religion or even small cult, uh, there tends to be these kind of uh, splits as one generation moves into the next. And um, it, it is really interesting to include that in the lore. I also really like the fact that there's a, kind of, there's a, there's a repeated elemental um, or element kind of theme going on with the Church of Cain having this control of fire. And then uh, reflectively, the Bahari having more of a connection to, you know, earth or the gardens, right? Yes. Um, so I, a question I have with, with the Bahari is, is, you know, in, in I don't want to say in past iterations, but it seems to be there's more of a focus on the concept of the gardens and the concept of, of their control of plants and a less emphasis on kind of the more masochistic path of Lilith. What inspired mm. that? Uh, mostly it was to focus more on, I guess, the religion and the philosophy. Although the the masochistic side of the path of Lilith is still can still definitely be present, I feel like the Bahari have less reason, and, and the author of this section uh, felt the same, uh, the Bihari have less reason to want to hurt themselves. They're not yeah. penitent. They don't need to make up for any great sin. Quite the contrary, the Bihari, and they have got a fair justification of feeling this way, have been screwed over and screwed up their entire lives and probably unlives. Uh, they certainly feel that way, and they certainly feel the person to whom they owe their adoration, Lilith, has been. Uh, hell, even if you read the Cainite tracts in the Book of Nod, uh, Lilith is still being screwed over by Cain. <laughs> and so the revelations of the Dark Mother just kind of compound that. Yeah. Um, so the Baharian cults, the Blood Gods, I would argue, are more empowered. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean they're good or righteous. They are self-righteous, um, but they have more fundamental connection to their faith, uh, being being the being growth, creation, their gardens, shepherding domains to become new gardens of suffering, of hope. Uh, they don't really want to make a new garden of Eden because, after all, Lilith was cast out of Eden. They want to make a garden that is better than yeah. Eden, that is better than anything that has come before, that any Cainite has made. And at the same time, they want to protect their flock. And all of that sounds very noble and lovely, but any vampire storyteller who has been around the block a few times will know that any vampire that wants to protect their flock is just protecting them because they want to feed from their flock. They don't want anyone else to feed from them. <laughs> uh, vampire shepherds aren't uh, aren't nice. They are just smart. And so the Bahari 
are similar. If they detect other vampires or mortals who would threaten their cultists, they will eliminate them with extreme prejudice because it's very important to them that they 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 feel like they need to earn the worship that they gain from their mortal followers and their fellow vampires. But at the same time, once they've earned it, they feel like those followers owe them because you know we're not we're not doing it for our health we're not doing it because we want to be spiritually cleansed we're doing this to protect the earth we're living on because none of us are going to survive without it and we're going to carve out our own little sections of it and fuck everyone on the outside well such as in the case of of budapest with over what is it over 60 70 percent of the kindred population being bahari in the garden of hope yeah that was uh I was quite pleased to be able to get that through Paradox because uh, <laughs> any any changes or anything we write has to be approved, uh, whether you're working on Onyx Path, Modifius, or on any of the number of board games or video games. And whenever you make a sweeping statement about a domain, like Budapest, which is, of course, a very large domain in, in Central Europe, um, being able to say that over 50% of the kindred are Bahari is making a very strong statement for the content of this book. Cults of the Blood Gods isn't a is not intended to be some throwaway book that you mm. just ignore. If you're a fan of Vampire, what it does, as well as telling you about all these religions, is also tells you about domains where these religions are prominent. But what it is also doing by introducing these religions, is laying groundwork for future books. It means that when you get a, I don't know, Atlanta by night, you are just as likely to see um, a, a Gnostic priest in the city as you are to see a Camarilla sheriff or an Anarch baron and a Bihari matron. Th these religions have been introduced which means they are now in the world. They're, they aren't confined to this book. They will now permeate the rest of the world of darkness. Yeah, it's 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 really cool. I'm, I, for one, am looking forward to the Budapest by night. Um, but having <laughs> having each of these, <laughs> and for you guys to develop it, um, having <laughs> having each of these cults really have a um, anchor in not just the areas in the world of darkness, but in the world of darkness at large, um, and and really put a, a lasting kind of footprint, which is, I mean, it's a it's a pretty big, um, pretty big effort that you and the rest of the team are putting together for this book, and I think everybody viscerally feels that. Absolutely. Well, I I'm obviously a big fan of V20 and Requiem, especially yeah. Second Edition, uh, having worked on both for a very long time, uh, but. I would say that because Requiem has been the main game from 2003 or four to 2000, and let's say 15, and V20 was trundling along, of course, for the last 10 years or so as well. Uh, but both games were always very clear on not establishing setting. Mm. So th it was always pitched at the reader that this book is what you make of it. This content is what you make of it. Drop it, keep it, do what you want. So it's been quite a long time since a vampire book or vampire books have been released where 
they establish what the world of darkness looks like. Now, some people may can take or leave it. Some people don't like that, and that's fine. There's nothing actually stopping you ignoring anything in these books. But for those people who do want an established setting, that is what you will now find with V5. You will find books that say, in Chicago, the prince is Kevin Jackson, and this is where the La Sombra made their first entreaty to join the Camarilla. That has happened now. Whether the La Sombra get in or not, at this point, is entirely up to the readers, because we haven't released any further books with La Sombra in the Camarilla. Uh, but eventually, we'll see the way the wind is blowing, I guess, and uh, then further developments will be made. Excellent. Yeah, I, I think it's really important that that you know there is a, a lore established. I think a lot of people are are kind of latching onto that because you, you and 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 everybody else in the in the um, Onyx Path team with with your particular supplements and books that you've released, there's always that concern. You were speaking about this before, but that concern for putting story seeds um, mm. and and hooks that'll latch people in and and inspire um, storytellers and players alike to kind of enhance their ongoing games. Yeah, uh, that's that is an incredibly important part of role-playing game writing in general for me. Whether I'm a writer or a developer, everything has got to have utility. Uh, there's no point writing up a class in a class-based game if no one's going to play it. Or yeah. same with powers. And uh, yeah, every every character bio has got to be full of story hooks. Whether it's players saying, I would like this person to be involved in my background, or I want, or storytellers thinking, I want characters to be able to investigate this part of this character's background. I think that's one of the most fantastic things about Chicago by Night that almost slips under the radar because there's, I don't mind saying it, I mean, I developed it. There's so much good stuff in Chicago by night, but all you have to do is read a character bio and the sheer number of rumors or whispers, plot hooks, and even seeds that are laced into their biographies means that you could almost set a story, if not a single session, around one character. Yeah. You, you know, you, one of these story seeds could become true, at which point that is a chronicle. And the fact that, well, I try to deliver this on every single product, and it seems to work. I mean, Becca's Jihad Diary was very well received. Chicago by Night's been very well received, and hopefully Cults of the Blood Gods will once it's all finished. I mean, the writing is finished, barring any last amendments. So, yeah, um, hopefully it will continue to go down well as a decent design philosophy. Fantastic. I, I mean, I can tell you right now that everything that we've seen, Cults is already being fantastically well-received. Um, I know at least between Marchosius and I, it has been. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's the audience I care about, honestly. Yeah. You two. Fantastic. Uh, anyone, else, anyone else can, yeah, burn. <laughs> well, you heard, you heard it here, folks. Pack it up, boys. We're done here. Yep. <laughs> it's just being written for us now. <laughs> um, I, I do I do have a follow-up question on that one, actually. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of backers. Um, 1,666 as of this point. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I know that, you know, part, there's a... There's a I guess a bit of a dialogue that goes on, right? You have the content that you put out. This is kind of 
uh, to the backers, kind of a taste of things to come, obviously still in development, um, and things are subject to change, um, either minorly or radically, uh, but also gives an opportunity for you to listen to the backers um, as far as constructive feedback. Now, constructive feedback is what I want to focus on here and, and, and ask you, um, to all the backers, you know, how would you say is the is the most constructive and useful way that they can provide their feedback, which will benefit your team and and the end product? Uh, really, it's looking at mechanical functionality and, of course, and setting. Uh, functionality is the key, uh, but also, I will say, there's always the possibility we might put something in setting-wise, biography-wise, something like that, that uh, has missed uh, our, I guess, aims sensitivity. That is a possibility. Uh, we, uh, Dixie Cochran commonly checks our work for sensitivity now where uh, it may be an issue. Uh, she is very good at that kind of thing, and all of our editors are very good at that kind of thing. But if anyone ever spots anything like that, best place to put it so that I can check in one central location while the Kickstarter is running is on the Kickstarter. Leave it in the comments, leave it in Great. on a comment on the updates, but mostly in the main comments. That's the easiest place to find them. Don't worry about looking like uh, some kind of rules lawyer or anything like that or, or oversensitive. Uh, there isn't such a thing uh, because the fact is you may post something, think it's the smartest thing in the world, and I may disagree with it, but thank you very much for your feedback. I still don't No, I still appreciate it. Uh, yeah. doesn't mean I will use it. Mm -hmm. But it, likewise, if you don't say anything, then I'm not going to even stand a chance of changing it. Right. Uh, I will say that more widely, one of the best places to go to discuss feedback that isn't with me is the World of Darkness 5th Edition Discord. Uh, the people on that Discord are fantastic fans, supporters, customers, players, storytellers. They are a brilliant group who I love to talk to, talk with, and just read the comments of because they will, let's say they find a ritual in Cults of the Blood Gods, one of them posts a question about it. Well, I might just post the ritual in brief and say, it achieves this. What do we think of this? And someone will say, I think it's really good. And someone will say, would it work better if it's like this? And they'll have a discussion, but it very rarely gets heated. It will usually come to a conclusion, and right. the conclusion will be, no, you know what? Despite the fact we disagree on it, we like it how it is. There's nothing wrong with having powers that people disagree on. Or, no, you know what? There is a breakdown in the system here. Let's feed it back to Matthew. At which point they either tag me in or someone messages it to me. And I just keep it at that point until it comes time to amend text. I'll review it, and again, I'll decide whether it needs amending or not. Uh, but, yeah, the Kickstarter and the World Darkness 5th Edition Discord are probably the best places to accumulate any kind of feedback like that. But specifically, that Discord is a wonderful place to discuss any misgivings you might have because you will find a very welcoming community who are really just... They're always just keen to help other people, whether they're new to Vampire or established fans. Yeah, that's great. That's great to hear. And, and I know that, you know... 
to give feedback on the Kickstarter, you should definitely back the Kickstarter. Um, the description, uh, the URL is actually in the chat right now. Um, it's also going to be in the description um, of this video for all the YouTube watchers. Um, but the the Discord, I believe, um, is accessible. Um, I don't know if we have a, a link. I don't personally I have a link one. to that, but um, it, I believe we just dropped one. So um, it's good to hear that you're you're taking this kind of concern um, and feedback from people. I think it's pretty pretty awesome. It's one of the reasons why we we all at Gehenna Gaming love um, Onyx Path Publishing, just by the your style in which you approach the projects and the and the um, the products that you're developing. You kind of open the doors to allow people to give you that kind of feedback, which is, is wonderful. It's, um, I'm glad you think that. I think it's something that we do very well with and by. Yeah. Uh, the f A lot of fans are very keen to offer feedback, and we're sure. always quite happy to receive it. Uh, and again, we won't always agree, but right. that doesn't mean you shouldn't submit it. Uh, the... I know some people will cynically say, "Well, you should be doing all this work yourself. You shouldn't. Uh, you shouldn't need our feedback." But mm. that is a cynical view because, especially speaking as a developer, if I have been working on a book for the best part of a year, I can get quite snow blind. Yeah, uh, and keep I so think close most to people it. can. Yeah, you just keep looking at the same text over and over again. You start missing the pitfalls. So when you've got dedicated fans who are prepared to say, "Hey, this is a um, this might be an issue," then that's brilliant. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. If I didn't spot it, the writer didn't spot it, and the editor didn't spot it, but you spotted it, then good on you. Thank you for spending your time doing it. And I'm always happy to to credit. Uh, the community, if um, or, or or specific individuals who may have really done a lot of heavy lifting in terms of errata, I think it's only fair. Uh, if people are doing work, they they deserve a thank you at the very least. Yeah, and I mean that said, there you know with a large amount of feedback, there's there is also the potential for having a large amount of bad feedback. So yeah. I mean, looking at things critically is is definitely key. But <laughs> absolutely. Um, let, let's, oh, let's... I, 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 if I may, I, I actually yeah, yeah. had that on on Book of Oblivion mm. uh, for for Wraith the Oblivion. So I co-developed that one with Bruce Bohr, who's a fantastic guy, and it was a brilliant team. But we knew that when it came to the Errata Pass, when we started taking on fan feedback, that there would be a lot of negative feedback, and the reason being. And in fact, I had the same thing with uh, with Contagion Chronicle, with the manuscript when we first uh, released that. And the reason is, and this is one of the reasons I dislike this kind of book in a way, uh, is the fact there's a travelogue, uh, what I call a travelogue section. So in Book of Oblivion, it deals with underworlds in various parts of the world. And I have certain dissonance with the idea that there's an African underworld and Indian underworld and an Aztec underworld and things like that. That's that's not necessarily a terribly uh, sensible contemporary thought, <laughs> but it was a 20th anniversary product. We tried to update it in the most reasonable and intelligent way we could, and I think the writers did a fantastic job. Now, Contagion Chronicle has travelogue sections. It has a uh, set. It has a setting in Asia, in Europe. In fact, it has one, at least one in every continent, including Antarctica. That was my intention all along. Uh, 
But the problem with doing travelogue pieces is there's never enough space to put everything you want to in there, which means you end up having to shortchange something. Yep. And when you detail locations and the people in those locations, you will always get it wrong to some degree or other, or some people will be upset by what you've written, and often quite validly so. Because, again, you cannot cover absolutely everything. Uh, we will probably run into a similar thing with the uh, Victorian Mage, because there's a big part of Victorian Mage that is covering the globe in the 19th century, and we're not doing it from some imperial standpoint, far from it. But there will be people who want waistcoats, monocles, top hats with gears on them, and everyone playing a steampunk mage, but that's not what it's going to be. Right. So the feedback we got on things like Contagion Chronicle and Book of Oblivion wasn't based around writing quality, but was about covering geography in not as thorough or not as realistic or not as fantastic a way as people wanted. And that can get quite a grind because ultimately that's less feedback on functional subject matter and more feedback on flavor and that just becomes a matter of opinion in a lot of cases. You know, what can you include? What can't you include? And yeah, that can be quite trying as a developer. But still, despite all that, I still welcome it. If you have feedback, uh, we may fuck up, quite frankly. We may say something stupid about the population of a city in a horribly generalized way. And if we do, call it out because that's our chance to change it. Yeah, that's yeah. It's it's interesting. You're you're anticipating uh, that kind of negative feedback. Um, yeah, that that that's really cool. <laughs> um, I think that the one thing that I've noticed, particularly with uh, since you've brought James on to manage the Kickstarters, is that the communication on them has been fantastic. So I do want to yeah. give a shout out to him as well yeah um, james bell has been superb it was always a very difficult task for rich mm -hmm. um i and he handled it very well but when rich was having to not only be our creative director but also the manager of our kickstarters that <laughs> meant that he was spending the vast majority of his time at least once every other month spending most of his time on kickstarter and that wasn't the way he necessarily should have been spending his time he'd yeah. probably agree and james the amount of work james does really goes to show how much rich was doing as well as everything else <laughs> but uh he james is just superb at it he communicates with the fans regularly the number of updates he issues the excitement with which he approaches it as well he loves the projects he works on so yeah all, all credits james he is a brilliant member of the team so how many how many people in total um, have worked on and, and are continuing to to work on Cults of the Blood Gods in total? That's a good question. <laughs> I'm uh, like I said, I'm very bad with numbers. Uh, we had at least a dozen writers on Cults of the Blood Gods. I like writing. I like hiring a large team, uh, and the reason I hire a large team is because it's actually a purely practical matter um well no there's a there's a slight creative side to it as well so creatively it means you get a lot of voices you get a diverse team and it means you the work the text doesn't read the same throughout 
that's that's a very strong reason for having a large team. However, there's a negative to that. It can create a cacophony uh, throughout the book where nothing feels like it matches up. You need a strong developer. When you've got a large team, you need a developer who can then tone everything down, make sure it all connects up. And some developers are good at that, some aren't. Some find it's more hassle than it's worth. Now, the pure practical side to having a large team is if you give everyone assignments, word count assignments of five to 10,000 words, what that means is when one of those writers drops off the project, as inevitably one of them will, you can replace them fairly easily. And whether that's by expanding an existing writer's word count, usually a writer who's already turned their work in, or whether it's by hiring someone else, they should be able to get that five to 10,000 words turned around pretty quickly. Whereas if you're doing a 150,000 word book and you give three writers 50,000 words each, and then one of them tells you the day before the deadline, I'm not able to do this anymore, you are left in a crap position because you've got you as developer have either got to write 50,000 words or you've got to hire someone else to do it, which means you've got to add another month or two onto the schedule. <laughs> yeah. People drop off on every single book, writers, artists, and I imagine part of that is because of the industry. Part of it is the fact that we are all, to a degree, self-employed, and that means we have a lot of things pulling on us, a lot of detention, a lot of uh, deadlines. And it means that it's one of the main reasons Onyx Path doesn't give out firm deadlines it's unrealistic to give out firm firm release dates i should say to uh to the audience to the fans because in we cannot control every single person on a team uh, we're all working all over the world so yeah uh cults of the blood gods had around a dozen people on and it was a nicely diverse team one of the writers uh, their parents were even in a cult uh, wow. So that that allowed us some <laughs> okay <laughs> firsthand insight. Yeah, uh, it wasn't a necessarily a happy story, yeah, but not. it was a um, really good insight into huh. um, into some of the subject matter. And we all did our research. We uh, had lots of meetings. Some of the writers never encountered each other. Some of them were in meetings together. Some of them shared chapters. Some of them wrote, wrote chapters all by themselves. So yeah. Uh, it was it was a good team, and they worked very well together. Fantastic. Um, circling back around, actually, and to touch on that in particular, are there portions of Cults of the Blood Gods that explores um, mortal cults, and maybe how maybe mortal cults that worship kindred or don't, but kindred leverage or influence? Yeah, there there is. There is an entire chapter on mortal cults. And I believe it's around there or the cult construction chapter that starts to deal with uh, well warnings, safety guidelines and such because it deals with some subject matter that some people are going to be uncomfortable incorporating into their games. Cults, by their nature, uh, often brainwash, often deprive people of 
basic necessities to make them dependent on the cult. Uh, they practice things like love bombing and other forms of abuse. And that kind of content does exist in Cults of the Blood Gods because some people want an authentic cult experience as vampires with mortal followers. And all you have to really do to make a mortal dependent on you is feed them a dose of your vitae we know from reading vampire across many editions how addictive that shit is but you can go further than that so we have a decent sized chapter on mortal cults we have a whole bunch of mortal cults details in there uh, just as examples Uh, groups of kine who worship kindred for various reasons some of them honest some of them not Uh, One of them is a Second Inquisition front that pretends to be a vampire cult, but is almost entirely populated by mortals. And yeah, uh, it's uh, this book. I've I've described it quite often as being the faiths and avatars for Vampire the Masquerade. It's the big book of vampire religion. But it is still a deeply horrific book. It still has a lot of subject matter that uh, that some people aren't going to get on with or some people are going to require safety guidelines ahead of before incorporating or just reading and that's fine it's useful I think for in any horror game whether it's cult which I work on or or vampire or anything else to forewarn readers of what's coming up so the storytellers can do the same thing and say hey group Do you want to go through how your coterie makes these retainers, these allies, these contacts, this herd actually follow you? Uh, Because I think one of the most fun things about V5 is that street level, that human side, the going back to the roots of vampire. It's less about playing politics in the Camarilla court and more about how you handle all your mortal associates, I would say. And at least from my perspective, but that comes with a very dark edge Uh, edge. I know is a loaded word these days (laughs) and how dark that gets, how realistic it is, how in depth or how much it's fade to black, how much is just hand waved away. No, these people follow you. And there's no nasty side to it at all. Um, You can do it however you like, but it should definitely be considered, I think. That's a big thing for us. Um, What, you know, kind of formalizing consent. Um, This is something that we did at PAX Unplugged, where we utilized a a formal sheet that people filled out and had a formal conversation with people and saying, okay, you know, this is not going to include or this scenario is not going to include these themes, or these are the themes that are totally, you know, good to go and, and everyone is okay with. But it, and, and we were having quite a lot of conversations with a lot of different players, game developers, GMs, et cetera, um, how the idea of formalizing consent allows for a much better game. And, and you mentioned cults um, in particular with, with dealing with these types of sensitive themes with horror um, and, and even with religion, because some people, um, that's it could be a bit of a sore spot. Um, yeah. have, having an open conversation and saying, "Hey, okay, this is the type of game that we're going to be running here. Is everyone okay with that? And if not, how can we tweak it to make it okay?" Well, yeah, it's that's a funny thing because I don't think a lot of people consider how religion 
is a sense of subject uh, for a lot of people and whether that's the whether that's because players may have had a very bad experience with religion or religious people mm-hmm. uh, specifically members of the religious hierarchy in some faiths yeah. uh, or whether it's because the players are themselves religious and a lot of we cynical leftist gamers, because a lot of gamers are leftist and a lot of gamers are cynical, uh, are quite snobbish when it comes to organized religion. Uh, there's, uh, it often goes hand in hand. I know I'm making a gross generalization here, and it's not always true that creatives often tend to be on the left wing. Left wing people often tend to be less ardently religious than people on the right. Now, that's not always true, but sometimes it is. And when it is, I find I've, I had a, an experience in one of my games where, way back when, when one of the players was a Baptist and one of the other players was very much an atheist on the side of anti-theism. Mm. And the any time religion came up in the game, the anti-theist was derisive, mocking, hateful towards religion. Uh, saw it as a poison on the world. You know, it blighted everything. Whereas the religious player wouldn't see it like that, and of course became an out of character issue as well because it, he was very much channeling his own prejudices. And she was uh, channeling her own in a, in a way, but she was very much the uh, the target of this. So by no means was it her fault. Um, and that, of course, required a talk away from the group. And happily, the group managed to stick together and move past all of that uh, with apologies given and so on. Uh, point being, though, that, yeah, anything that someone might consider a, a sensitive or delicate subject matter is... Is something that you should discuss at the group, uh, within the group. And in Cults of the Blood Gods, religion is the central part of that. Right. Uh, you don't have to ask the group, is anyone here religious? If so, leave. <laughs> what you can say is, this game is going to co- cover religious subject matter. It's not always going to portray religion in a, in a favorable light. Sometimes yeah. it's going to be downright antagonistic. Yeah. And is there anyone here who has any boundaries that they want to discuss just like you would with any other subject matter. Absolutely. You know, not, not to belabor the point here, but I mean, there are there, you know, like you said, there, there may be some people who have um, certain issues that are branching from religion and, and their experience in spirituality or religious organizations where, you know, the concepts that are explored in cult, cult of the blood gods gives them a platform to explore some of the issues that they might have or some of the concepts that they're you know uh, are interested in exploring um and and working out for themselves maybe with people who grew up in religious households who are no longer religious anymore um one of the developers you said were, were or one of the writers you said grew up in a cult i mean what better way to explore that idea later in life than to delicately um explore the concepts that are featured in cult of the blood god so i think it's a great opportunity on the other end as well yeah i um I remember, I won't name any names, but I worked on a game that was quite Mm religion-focused. And I recall a a call-out for new writers to come along uh, and uh, apply to work on it. And 
a bunch of people applied, but at the same time, in the same breath, in the same email, were saying, in reality, I think all religion is stupid. People who are religious are dumb. And um, and you know, I would be looking to write this all from a very jaded perspective, you know, very tongue-in-cheek. And that really wasn't what the game was looking for. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, by no means am I saying atheists are the problem. I am an atheist. I don't mind identifying myself as such. But I think you can still be respectful of other people um, and, and their beliefs, uh, providing they're not being harmful to you or to, well, to anyone else. Excellent. It's a very deep and uh, complex <laughs> subject matter. It yeah, is. It's, it's interesting. It, it, I, um, go ahead. No, I, I think it's it, it is an um, interesting subject, especially you know, cults of the blood gods is you know we're talking about a game of pretend with a really cool, interesting uh, set of of hooks and 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 stories that we can roll some dice and have a good time with. But at the end of the day, we're all human and we're exploring you know the nature of of being human, um, particularly the monstrous nature of, of being. Mm. Human. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's interesting because. Um, to give a little bit of a background, since this is not an interview about me, it's about you. Um, I, I, my degree is actually in religion and religious studies and philosophy. Um, and I spent a lot of time in college studying cults and different sects of religions. And I'm very interested to see the both in how they're handled, which we've gotten a good sense of from the previews, but also the... Um, the the cult creation guide um, to see Ooh, yeah. the, how that will be built out and uh, uh, that's actually my segue. Um, <laughs> it, what can we expect to see? Because obviously in the previews we've seen here is a bunch of lore about the cult and then some of the background maybe a an important person in it fleshed out with stats and then some rituals. But what will the the creation chapter look like? Uh, so I don't want to ruin too much of this because it won't be long before this one actually gets dropped on the Kickstarter and it'll be fun for people to read it. <laughs> but uh, the cult's uh, construction section will give you everything from, well, from the aforementioned safety guidelines uh, through to a comprehensive breakdown of how cults are formed in our world and the world of darkness. Uh, okay complete with handy bullet points uh, and the way people are brainwashed and indoctrinated into joining cults obviously some people join them quite willingly but many join many are targeted uh, because they are single or they are homeless or they are at the lowest ebb and that that's not terribly different from our world uh and you have lots of tables of potential, uh, all, all kinds of things like cult setup, cult structure, cult names. Uh, what I consider, uh, I, this is something I want to do with every major V5 book I develop. Uh, I, I, not everyone got on with it, um, and that's a horrible caveat to put up front, but I think there should always be something mechanical uh, and hefty in a book uh in a role-playing game book just yeah. for that part of the audience i like a book to appeal to uh, every segment if it can and homesteading was the chicago by night one it was yeah. how to divide up blocks and play games from an almost uh, city skylines or sim city way <laughs> and um 
this one has your cult construction tools, uh, which uh, sort of breaks up cults into backgrounds and, uh, and basically takes you through the uh, the the mechanical building of cults within Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, so it has both setting and mechanics, which to me is kind of what you need to uh, lean into. Yeah, usable, usable content, not yep. just, I don't want to call lore fluff, but, you know, um, not just uh, world building, but also things that you can use in, in, the ga in your game, which is, is fantastic. Yeah, well, that, that's certainly the hope. Excellent. Um, to kind of piggyback on that same question, um, you've mentioned with the success of the Kickstarter that we might see some new stretch goals, maybe some more cults that haven't been fully fleshed out yet. Uh, I think you teased a Gangrel cult uh, over on the mm. uh, World of Darkness 5th Discord. Um, are those things that are already teased out in, in like maybe snippets in the book and then you're going to flesh out further or what, what is there, uh, what there are actually even more cults being uh, teased in cults of the blood gods. Yeah. Um, some are just supposed to be purely local. You know, you have about six to 10 people in a cult and they yep. exist within one domain or a couple of domains. That's it. Uh, some are going to be more far reaching. I think cults, of the blood gods is going to be, the book that has the largest cults in no matter what and so when we get to the stretch goals everything else is going to be far more localized but so that means we can really focus in on clan specific cults uh, having a I, one of the ones that I was saddest to miss out on of course the blood was was another Ventru uh, cult because the Mithraists are in but anyone can join the Mithraists theoretically uh, well not the Tremere uh, but <laughs> no one wants them around. Uh, but uh, next to the Hecata, the Ventru are the biggest ancestor worshippers out there. They have all kinds of legends surrounding their Methuselahs, and I love that. So I think every clan does, but the Ventru have had it really right. hammered home for after additions, uh, addition after addition. And uh, something I wrote up for the V20 Dark Ages companion that I really want to see expanded was it was they were sort of bloodline light. Uh, and it was the descendants of Tinia and the descendants yep. of uh, I'm trying to remember the other ones I put Orthia I think Orthia and all the other uh, Ventru fourth and fifth generations because they all felt like their own distinct families and it was a way of structuring the Ventru in a way to actually make them feel more like the noble the nobles that they were uh, that in in many ways it was I wrote that up to make them more in line with the many noble families of Europe or aristocratic families of Europe who can all pretty much trace their uh, lineage to a certain point probably Charlemagne everyone traces it back to Charlemagne. Uh, <laughs> But you have your you have your Plantagenets and you have your Angevins, you have your Habsburgs, you have your Borgias and or whatever. I know those aren't all connected up or Bourbons, but the point being that they are often at war with each other, but they all come back to the same progenitor. Mm. And being able to explore Ventru families like that probably wouldn't call them families because you've already got the Hecata 
they've kind of got that clamped down now. Uh, but yeah, adventure families, Tremere houses, uh, Gangrel always need more love. Always. Uh, <laughs> the ga- and yeah, the Gangrel are one of the most difficult clans to write for in a lot of ways. I, a oh, lot yeah. of people feel that way, and I'm I'm the same because they as a concept i know i'm very prone to tangents apologies uh, no this, is, this uh, is great uh always typified as the outsiders they're always stereotyped as the wanderers the the wild ones and whatnot but no one ever plays a game of vampire like that <laughs> no one plays masquerade like that and partly that's because there aren't any books well there are very few books that are set up to yeah. encourage traveling play but if there are, you're then kind of restricted to play Gangrel and Ravnos if yeah. you want to play the clans true to type. Right. Um, so giving the Gangrel some religion, uh, it doesn't have to be... The, the big decision it will be, do we play them to the stereotype and try and be all painted in woad, very mm. pagan, mm. Uh, they're all Vikings living in a modern era? Could do that. Could make it a little more interesting. So we'll see where we go. But there will definitely be something Gangrelly. Excellent. Yeah, it's kind of almost uh, inspired by like uh, tribal kind of religions and that kind of thing. Yeah, but again, that's a very difficult thing to write because. Yeah, yeah. It can be uh, Yes, very much so. Uh, it's something that White Wolf of the past were. They were sensitive to it, but they weren't as sensitive to it as they definitely should have been. Right. Uh, or would be now, and you just have to look at wealth, the apocalypse for that. Yeah. So when it comes to the Gangrel, I'm we're not going to be doing some Native American, um, some made-up Native American uh, group, and say, and the the Gangrel infiltrated them, and they have their own language, and that it's it's uh, the kind of thing that's. 10 years ago, 20 years ago would have been pitched and probably okayed. But now we know better. We should have known better or they should have known better. And but we won't make that mistake. Excellent. So, you know, with, with cults of the blood gods, you know, you, you don't just have the, the content that's coming out, the, the new book, the, um, there we're now at a hundred K plus. So now we're, we're going to get a whole bunch of new art. Uh, but also you are running, a Cult of the Blood Gods Chronicle on Red Moon role playing. Yeah. Um, that is extremely cool. So far, I absolutely love it. Um, so let's let's talk about. It. I want to talk a little bit about that. About how you know, kind of what your approach has has been um, and the impetus of that. So all credit to Red Moon Role Playing. Honestly, uh, they're the ones who make it sound as good as it, <laughs> as it does. Uh, yeah, they're fantastic. They they are excellent editors, and uh, so they add music, they add sound effects uh, when Yalmar is around to add sound effects. But um, <laughs> but crucially, they're very good at editing to make role playing games sound like audio dramas. Quite often, uh, the dice rolling often gets cut out of it, that kind of thing. And out of character chat is non-existent, uh, except maybe for intros. And. Um, my Cult of the Blood Gods game that I am running for them, The Family, 
uh, is a story that sees a diverse, a disparate group of unlikely heroes, very much not heroes. Uh, we have <laughs> yeah. Raymond Milina, we have Maria of the Lamier, we have Natalie of the Giovanni, but adopted into the Cappadocians. And we have uh, Joey Putanesca, or John Smith, as he goes by, <laughs> um, uh, having to join together to plug a leak in the clan, in clan affairs. And the leak ties to some of the events that are detailed in Cults of the Blood Gods, specifically relating to the promise of 1528. Now, these aren't high-powered vampires. They're all fledglings or neonates. And my approach for it, interestingly, we did our first session, took about three hours, all the players were there for it, and it had everyone going through their, I guess, introductory scenes and getting to a certain point where they were meeting Donatello Giovanni in New York. That was where we were going to end our first session, and that would have been divided up into three episodes or two episodes, depending on how badly or how well it was edited, I should say. Now, I got to the end of that session. Everyone seemed to have a good time, and I felt, yeah, <laughs> and that didn't work. It, Why? Uh, it was too exposition-heavy. It was too... There was a lot of role-play, a lot of talk, not a lot of action, really, mm. and not a lot of justification for why characters were acting the way they were. Uh, the players were all very confident with why they were acting the way they were, but uh, it wasn't so much show, don't tell, as we're coming in blind, run along, come along with it. So what we, what I did was then I spoke to all the players within a day afterwards and said, I need to record prologues for yeah. all of you yeah, uh, because we need what we really lacked in that first session, uh, peek behind the curtain was any element or really much of an element of human horror. Mm. Uh, now it wasn't my intention. I'm not blaming the players by any means. It was one of those things that all GMs, all storytellers have come up against where you want the players to act a certain way and they don't. And in this case, I can put my hands up and say that's because I didn't I didn't signpost things clearly enough. I don't like to direct players, but I certainly didn't make them or encourage them to act in a way that would really put human tragedy at the forefront. But by going back and doing... 30-minute prologues with each character after the fact. And what I did was I suggested to Matthias at Redmond Roleplaying what we could do with this series is like uh, Lost. We could have flashbacks for each character. Yeah. So we could still be going through the main episode and then partway through you have a whoosh noise and you then see where this character came from and so the why they're acting the way they are. And all of a sudden, now, since those have been recorded, it makes that first episode, if I do say so myself, really fantastic because yeah, it's a it study is. in contrasts really with is. a character like Natalie, uh, who Clara Herbal is playing. Who's brutal. You have, yeah, you've got this really, on one hand, underconfident, shy, timid, but quite sociopathic murderer <laughs> in waiting. Uh, and you don't know why she is that way. Then you have a flashback where she's this ultra-confident, 
thrill-seeking drug user at a party, and you can see how she basically loses that confidence to a horrible embrace and yeah. a drug overdose. So, you know, you kind of see the journey. Same with Ray M Melina, played by Jason Carl. You have this scene where, in the main story, he is meeting up with a Tremere. They're having to make a deal, uh, which is very, on the face of it, very mundane, very financial. Uh, but you know that he's on the outs with his family. He's the person who's been sent to make this deal, and it... it doesn't really sit right. Why is this such a successful fat cat being sent to another city to deal with the Tremere? You have his flashback. You can kind of see why he is being treated like shit by his family because he nearly got them raided by the FBI. <laughs> and his business partner went and killed himself. Sorry, spoilers, but that was episode two, and it's been up for a week now. Yeah, <laughs> I've actually, I've uh, actually not done with that episode, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, but that's I think you can probably friend. see it coming yeah. as soon as you're introduced to Bryce. You know, you oh, know yeah. how it's going to end. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, in short, um, the that story isn't in cults of the blood gods we have a chronicle in cults of the blood gods but isn't the family uh, if the family as an audio chronicle goes well i'll see about adding it to uh trail of ash and bone the one of the stretch gods for cults of the blood gods i'll just write it myself mm. uh, but uh i wanted to use elements from cults of the blood gods and just improvise a little just sort of bounce off the players and that's where the family came from uh but red moon role playing uh, uh it's yeah hope it's not too out of turn but they are a fantastic uh fantastic show and people really should listen to them if they've never enjoyed listening to actual plays before they should give red moon role playing a go because they do it very differently to oh, yeah. i think most other shows yeah I, I would agree i mean they're one of my favorites if not I think right now I'm probably top um, actual play podcast that I really enjoy. Um, and between the, now we're on, you know, the second game that, that you're jamming for them. So it's pretty cool to have you back on there. Fourth um, game, oh, actually. Yeah. Fourth game. Oh, really? Yeah, what are, what are done, the games? First one I did was They Came From Beneath the Sea. Yeah. Which was a very Lovecraftian version of They Came From Beneath the Sea. It was more They Came From Beyond the Stars. Uh, and second one was Scarred Lands. Yep. Uh, so D&D 5th edition. Third one was Cult Divinity Lost. Mm -hmm. And now it's Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, so yeah, it's Excellent. been a busy year for me in Red Moon role-playing. But I got my uh, Silver Any Award for it. Uh, so it's up there just out of sight <laughs> but I, it, for best uh, role-playing game podcast so that, yeah, that's well, nice congratulations Excellent. to you and the rest of the red moon, <laughs> red moon role-playing folks yeah. um i, I think well you know going back going back to the preludes um and the kind of seamless integration into the into the chronicle uh, or into the episode kind of where you have the whoosh it's very intuitive um but it's also a very cool tool for people to there's a lot of there's a lot of storytellers that tend to um, forego the prelude um, mm. just to kind of get into the meat of the game. Let's just start playing, guys. Um, but this, I hope, um, inspires other storytellers to kind of rethink the idea of the prelude and oh, and yeah. seeing it as an essential tool to, like you said, help kind of set the stage for their players to move in the right direction that you, that you as a storyteller, kind of want to take them. Yeah, it's that the question of why is this character where they are now? 
What did they do so badly to get them to where they are? Or what did they do so well to get them to where they are now? And I know it's somewhat de rigueur these days to look at a TV show like Lost and say, oh, the ending was shit. And the third, I stopped watching come the third season and things like mm-hmm. that. But uh, for one, I think the ending is actually very strong. It's very difficult to end a six-season show, yeah. so you, you shut your mouth. But <laughs> other than that, I got, I've been in fights with people over <laughs> what the end of Lost means, uh, as if it, it's not a great mystery. Uh, but I think it is one of the, especially early on, but like the first season, the fourth se- first, fourth, fifth, and sixth season are fantastic character studies. There's almost a noir element to it, oh, uh, yeah, which is which I guess not many people really point at Lost and say that's a noir show. But the idea of characters who are going to constantly fail and they are constantly being punished for the bad things they did in life, or it, they kind of are. Uh, they're not in hell, they're not in purgatory, so again, shut your mouth. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there is that sense that they screwed up royally in the real world, and where they are now, they are going to have to bust their humps to actually make things right, and they may die trying. And I think that's an awful... I take an awful lot of from shows like Lost and and the first two seasons of the Battlestar Galactica remake, uh, 19.2, that's a lesser-known show. It's a Canadian cop show, ran for four seasons, the English-language version. There's a French-language version that ran for two. But 19.2 is probably my favorite TV show of all time. It is magnificent, most brilliant character drama you will ever ever watch and it's on amazon prime uh, for anyone who has it at least it is in the uk and i can't recommend it enough anyway 19 it's called i'm looking it up right now it's called 192 i've never seen it but no i don't think many people outside of canada have and yeah. it's a shame but because it really is just beyond sublime i i've never watched anything quite as gripping moving and i wanted to all the characters in it are just perfect for a role-playing game that any role player who watches it can immediately see how these sorts of characters could fit into their game i think i felt very much the same way about the first season of true detective Uh, absolutely i will 100 percent have to watch this yeah 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 there's uh yeah you will definitely feel some same vibes there but anyway that's just uh <laughs> the matthew dawkins what is he watching hour two hours <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> the t- tv recommendation uh segment of our of our interview we, we, we try um, to cover every topic and have a little bit of something for everyone <laughs> yeah um you want to you want to go, no. <laughs> go for it. tell you buddy uh, i want to ask a very serious question now um <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that with a straight face. Um, so I, I do want to know, uh, especially since last time you were on our stream, you sang a song for someone who backed Mummy. Oh, yes. When will when will we be seeing a book of kindred songs and slam poetry? <laughs> It'll be a while. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I I'm a fairly good improvisational. <laughs> 
artist, artist, yeah. Christ, piss artist. Uh, I. Uh... <laughs> so does that mean that you can that you yourself are planning a a deaf poetry jam uh, coming up right now? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> all, um, <laughs> all, all seriousness though i i do have i do have a follow-up though um i do have an actual serious question <laughs> okay i was about to i was about to uh riff with you <laughs> about a uh about a motherfucker called kane who was never <laughs> to blame he had this brother called abel his Hello. sacrifices on the table they were never Uh-oh. actually no what's your question <laughs> <laughs> no, i'd like more i'd like more of some of that please <laughs> you, met, you, you mentioned it on discord i had to bring it up <laughs> um but it, all uh, speaking of supplements um you know you can see the the book of nod back there i'm a huge fan of of that and revelations of the dark mother as a lot of us are um <laughs> will we ever see a book of the grave war supplement in this similar oh, style I really hope so. Beckett Shihadzari kind of put it back on the map. I don't think it was ever even on the map when it was first introduced, but uh, it was. it's kind of become a book of importance given what it did to the Tremere. Uh, I, I really hope it does. Uh, I don't know who would develop it, hopefully on its path, but um, I, I'll work for anyone. Um, <laughs> No, in seriousness, uh, I don't know. Uh, if uh, Paradox wanted or Modifius wanted a company to make a book of the Grave War and they thought it would sell, I could definitely see it happening. I think the biggest downfall the book of the Grave War has is its title. Uh, I think <laughs> yeah. it's an awful name. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, to the outsider, the book of Nod doesn't say much, but yeah, um, yeah I we'd have to rethink, I think, the Book of the Grave War. Um, was it Das Book von der Vandenkrieg or something like that? Well, that sounds a lot cooler than Book of the Grave War. Yeah, yeah but everyone will think it's in German at that point, uh, so that will put people off. It'll be it'll be the trifecta of, of three book, three awesome books with horrible names. Revelations <laughs> of the Dark Mother isn't exactly a good name either, in my opinion. Neither is the Echis fragments. Oh my oh god, god, I don't even know how to say that. Is it Echis <laughs> yeah. or Erases? How do you say that? I've always said er- Erkies, um, because it's E-R-C-I-Y-E-S. So it's um presuming the C is hard, Erk, Erk, Ear, or Ease. Yes, Erky, yes. I don't know. I'm not from bloody <laughs> K-Mackley, uh, despite what uh, uh, viewers of the Gentleman's Guide to Vampires might think. <laughs> Erky's, Reese's Pieces. Okay. Um. So now that we've had our, our TV recommendations segment and our uh, linguistic segment, <laughs> um, I want to take a, a break and look at some of the, the questions that have been filtering in. From our from our viewers yeah. right now, uh, so we've gotten a, a, several really good ones, um, and I just saw one pop in that I'll make sure I ask. Don't worry. Um, but earlier on, someone mentioned um, the beckoning, um, and you have hinted that the the Hakata are not affected by the beckoning. Um, that is true. Will we have a reason for that in Cult of the Blood Gods, or will that be much like the beckoning was in the core book, kind of left up to player and storyteller imagination? Uh, you'll have a few reasons, and uh, you can choose one of them, or you can wait for it to be clarified at a later point. My expectation, and it's founded in nothing but my expectation, is that you will never find out the true reason the Hecata weren't beckoned. Uh, but there's some fairly 
decent pointers as to why they weren't pulled off to uh, wherever all the other elders and Methuselahs were pulled off. Now, uh, wrong uh, phrasing, I know, <laughs> but uh, but the right clan for it. <laughs> the um, that that doesn't mean the rest of the clans in the world of darkness know that the Hecata haven't been beckoned. Far from it. They are very much putting the, putting the news out there that they are weak, which may seem counterintuitive, but the fact is every other clan is in hiding right now, so they don't want to put a target on their backs. And they certainly don't want other clans pointing the Second Inquisition at them because they are theoretically stronger the main issue they have is for all their methuselahs and elders that may still be active and not being pulled uh they are only a single clan they have no fixed allies and um that means they have to depend on themselves and if they didn't have all of that they'd be as pathetic as the ravnos oh shots fired um <laughs> <laughs> well, and it kind of goes in line with the idea of you know when you're strong, appear weak. Is it Art of War? I think. Yeah. Um, that it's that's interesting. That, no, yeah, I, I'm excited. I, I'm particularly excited for that one because I, we've had a lot of discussions on our Discord about what the beckoning actually is, and there's a lot of hints, obviously, but it'll be fun yeah. to see the reasoning why a clan isn't being affected now. It. I think one of the most common expectations would be that it's because Cappadocius was destroyed, mm -hmm. or Cappadocius. Uh, that is a, another bit of linguistics. Yeah, I think technically yeah. it's supposed to be Cappadocian. Uh, they didn't have, yeah, they didn't have um, soft seas right. uh, in that part of the world. But anyway, so it should be Cappadocius. But that aside. Um, uh, I wouldn't think it's because he was destroyed. I don't think it's anything to do with him in particular having been eaten by Augustus Giovanni. But that's my theory. But <laughs> you'll get to read the manuscript and uh, come up with your own or attach Excellent. yourself to one particular posited idea. Excellent. Nice. Um, another question we had was regarding... Um, the, the Bahari and the Church of Cain, specifically, um, there seems to be a little bit of a dichotomy there between um, life or garden, nature, uh, rituals, and then fire. Uh, is that a, a sign of a rivalry between them? Um, and if so, yes. okay, excellent. There's the answer to that. That's an easy one. Uh, yeah, the two don't get on. Uh, there's. It was very important to me that these religions had automatic inbuilt rivalries and alliances. So the Bihari and the Church of Set, for instance, make surprisingly good allies because they both favor a form of liberty and freedom, especially from the idea of Cain. Uh, but the Church of Cain and the Bihari despise each other because uh, specifically, I guess, more than anything else, the Bihari despised the Church of Cain uh, because of everything bad Cain did to Lilith. Right. But the Church of Cain don't think terribly highly of uh, the linen either. The biggest rivalry, though, and possibly unexpected, is the Church of Set and the Cult of Mithras. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I very much favor the idea 
and I know it's a bit D&D-esque or Moorcockian, that law and chaos as forces, uh, people gravitate toward them. And people tend to think of chaos in an elemental fashion as this out-of-control, sprawling morass, and if you get caught in it, you're dead. But from a vampire perspective, law and order and the cult of Mithras are about things like blood bonds, hierarchy, fealty to an elder who will occasionally give you gifts and protection. It's a form of extortion, but at the same time, it's a form of, of protection. And you know where you stand in the cult of Mithras because you have a title, you have a rank. When it comes to the Church of Set, they are the direct antithesis of that. They believe that blood bonds are evil. They believe that service to a particular elder is evil. And they believe that structure limits you. They believe that you should be letting your beast off the leash occasionally. You should be divesting yourself of all of your personal attachments and specifically your material possessions. It's especially good if you give those material possessions to the church so it can keep funding that new roof it talks about. <laughs> but the fun thing is that the Church of Cain and the Church of Set if they're in the same domains, they could have members belonging to the Camarilla, they could have members belonging to the Anarchs, but they will still be at war with each other. Yeah, And that's what I particularly like about the religions being added to this game. It's that you can have sects, clans, and religions. Yeah, uh, And that means you've got a whole different, lots of different ways of having people uh, align and fight. And it isn't just Camarilla versus Sabbat or Camarilla versus Anarchs anymore. You've got lots of different ways that those lines can cross awesome. or come together. That's that. I, I love that. Where it's, I know that's one of the criticisms about V five in general was the removal of the Sabbat and the focus on the um, dichotomy between the Camarilla and the uh, Anarchs. It'll be nice to have different opposing factions to play with potentially on much smaller levels but also much larger levels with lo massive groups like the setites the church of set and yeah. the church of cain so that'll be that'll be a really interesting um as as a storyteller for uh plot fodder as well yeah and i, I think also one of the big things that a lot of people liked about this sabbat is the occult aspect of it right the religious mm. aspect of it i know that there's um, a lot of people who are kind of who are, who are kind of missing that, you know, hearing that that Sabat has much of a much kind of more toned down, if not um, out of the picture as of now, um, kind of state. So having all these interesting cults, I mean, it kind of breathes life into it and says, okay, well, you you obviously aren't going to be playing that um, that Sabat character quite yet, but here is a bunch of other cults that maybe you can dive into. Yeah. Well, that that is the intention. So hopefully, people will. Yeah, um, I just I want to plug the Kickstarter. It's still going. I think we have eighteen, seventeen, eighteen days um, as yeah. of the, this recording. So um, for everybody that's watching right now, if you have not backed it, um, go make a pledge um, on Kickstarter.com/slash/projects/slash/two-zero-zero-six-six-two-four-eight-three/slash/cults-of-the-blood-gods. I'll, I'll put a link. BA. That is a very long URL. Go yeah. Google Cult of the Blood Gods Kickstarter. Um, go back it. Put a pledge down. Um, 
you know, know that your pledge is a pledge and it will be um, received once the project is finished for those that were thinking about it um, coming out of the tail end of the holidays. But it's definitely worth it, especially because you get to get all of these really cool updates um, that oh, yeah. Onyx Path has been putting out. Yeah, and you get to contribute to the funding of additional books that won't get made without those stretch goals being hit. Exactly. Ooh, I've got a question too. Are names going to be uh, printed? The names of the Kickstarters? Are you? I know sometimes that's the thing. Are you printing names of the Kickstarters in in this one? Oh, uh, Kickstarter backers. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm, I don't believe so. I think we stopped doing that with books. Maybe even the beginning of this year. Uh, yeah. I think we just stopped doing it, and we didn't. I don't believe we ever announced it. We just stopped saying on our Kickstarter pages that we were going to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, I don't know the specific reason for it. It could just be an aesthetics thing. It could be a page count thing. Totally. Uh, but yeah, I remember way back. Um, Back, I think with Book of the Worm 20, so my very first book with Onyx Par, uh, when people were complaining that uh, Kickstarter backer names should be at the beginning of the book and not at the end of the book and all kinds of things like that. Yeah. So it may oh. prove more hassle than it's worth. The, yeah. the fact is not many people back just so their name appears in an index. Um, most right. people just back so they can get the book. So sure. I think exactly. Yeah, if you can have four more pages of content rather than four pages of Kickstarter backer names, you'd probably go for the content. Well, and if it, you know, if I'm the first person to be asking this, it's probably a good choice. <laughs> yeah, hundred um, percent. I'm going to ask one more audience question, and then um, we're going to take. I'm going to yell that by my wife in chat because of the cat trying to climb up into my face. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, then we're actually going to switch gears a little bit, and I want to talk about some of the other projects you've been working on recently. Okay. Um, I'm here all night. So our last question. <laughs> our last question from the audience for now. Uh, well, well, don't worry. We'll get a chance to ask some more later. Is uh, as a, a one person. This is a for one person in particular, but I'll ask it. They are a Requiem player, and they are transitioning to V5, and their favorite clan in Requiem are the Maquette. And they wanted mm. your recommendation on what they should play in V5. That's a good question. Probably a member of the Hecata, actually. Um, and that isn't just to promote this Kickstarter. Uh, <laughs> the Maquette in Requiem... So in Requiem 1st Edition, uh, all of the clans, all the five clans, were very much consolidated ideas from Masquerade. Um so uh, with the Ventru becoming, well, being Ventru and Malkavians all in one, the Gangrel were the Bruhar and the Gangrel and so on. The Mechettes were this weird mix of Giovanni, followers of Set, and La Sombra from memory. And I have worked on Requiem Second Edition, but all of the clans got far distinct, well, well much more distinct from Masquerade by Second Edition, yep. which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Excuse me. That said, I think the maquette still have that death focus, that weird focus, that unsettling focus that the Hecata do. Uh, they are still addicted to solving mystery. They are still uh, shadows. Uh, that is their nickname. And that has a little in common with the La Sombra, but they don't have the domineering side of the La Sombra. They are more creepy, skulk around, 
power behind throne vampires, and I see them more akin to the Hecata in that regard. Excellent. So, shifting gears a little bit, talk about yeah. uh, something you and I spoke about in detail, actually, last time, but I want to circle back around, particularly with the upcoming announcement at Midwinter. They came from beneath the sea. Um, mm. For those of our viewers who aren't familiar with it, who may only be vampire fans, They Came From Beneath the Sea is a uh, more lighthearted game, I think is an accurate way of putting it. Uh, yeah. Focused on the B-horror films of the 50s and early 60s. Um, it, I do want to ask... Um, What's next for that game line? Uh, I do, you, there's an announcement coming up at midwinter, and I'm sure you don't want to spoil that announcement. But uh, can, are we are we expecting more books? Uh, are we expecting more supplements? Um, exploring maybe. I certainly hope so. Uh, ultimately, it depends on how well they came from beneath the sea does uh, when it goes into retail, and that's the good thing. This book will be in retail. You'll be able to get in bookstores, Excellent. game stores, Amazon. Uh, it's Onyx Path owned. We're not licensing it from anyone, so that means costs are lower yep. uh, than if we were having to pay a commission, essentially, to a licensor. Uh, but yeah, I would I would love to do. Uh, they came from from book for multiple movie genres, and it's one of those uh, funny things. Where this this game was a lot meant a long time in the making, mm -hmm. and when I first started making it, it was deadly serious. And uh, come the time beneath the sea was put together, it had become almost more of a comedy game. And I had told myself that the next one wouldn't be that if I was able to do another they came from game it would be of a different genre like let's say a western uh, they came at high noon and it would be a straight laced western game uh, but still based on western movies spaghetti westerns probably but it would have the option of being Gary Cooper John Wayne Clint Eastwood because they came from beneath the sea does the same thing with do you want do you like your sci-fi sort of pulpy chunky <laughs> Lovecraftian um, and I had a discussion with uh, Rich Thomas and Eddie Webb of Onyx Path Publishing Eddie Webb is one of my fellow in-house developers <laughs> and we and Rich reminded me that what makes this game so special, Beneath the Sea so special, is its comedic elements, yeah. is its parody nature, the fact that it feels a little like airplane. It feels like you're playing a game that is amusing without the players feeling obligated to be funny. And that was the biggest danger with they came from beneath the sea or any comedy game is the idea that you can't tell the audience what is funny you can't you just can't right. do it because different people have different tastes but what you can do is put the tools in place to make them feel funny and they came from beneath the sea does that quite well i know not everyone likes cards against humanity but one of the biggest uh, comparisons i guess i have or 
uh, frames of reference is the way that in a game like Cards Against Humanity, you're not comedians when you sit down at the table, but when you start putting the cards down, you all think you're hilarious, and you're not <laughs> you're not hilarious because of any great genius. You're hilarious because of conjunctions of words and sentences, and people all have a have a laugh depending on the game. Cards Against Humanity is the example in this case. Uh, they Came From Beneath the Sea does a similar thing with its mechanics. It's what I strive for in any game where the mechanics directly fuel gameplay and gameplay feels organic with the mechanics. It's not, uh, it's not like, and I, I'll use this as an example, maybe a bit harshly. Actually, no, I'll use another one. Like the way D twenty was applied to absolutely everything when yep. D twenty was in vogue, uh, sometimes it did not fit with the games that it was paired with. But you used V twenty because it's what you knew, and the story path system and the way it's been altered for they came from beneath the sea does that. It makes the game such a firm lock. Now to get back to my point, Rich told me what makes beneath the sea so good is it's amusing. And therefore, if we do any future they came from games, they also need to be amusing. They need to have that same capacity for humor. Yeah. And at the time, I felt like, hmm, that isn't what I wanted when I came up with this. I didn't want to make a line of comedy games because I was mistakenly thinking, and maybe my pride was a bit injured, I don't know. I was thinking, well, comedy is kind of seen as the lowest form isn't it? Yeah, when people think of media, when think of people think of genres, they put comedy right at the bottom. It's probably even below sci-fi and horror. And when you think of gaming, comedy is just nowhere because there aren't many comedy RPGs, especially I guess the only one that's ever really stood the test of time is Paranoia. And I had to really think about it to and to discuss it with Eddie and Rich. Uh, who both reminded me that it is actually very difficult to make a comedy game or comedy anything that works. That while comedy is often seen as the lowest form of art, it is one of the most difficult ones to make function. And the fact that they came from beneath the sea works so well, and every single time we have played it, ran it, seen it, ran at conventions, everyone around the table is laughing. And as soon as people do, they back it, whether it was on Kickstarter or on Backerkit, where it remains for a short period. If you're watching this, type in, they came from beneath the sea, Backerkit, into Google, because it's only going to be there for a little while longer. But please do get it while you can still pre-order. Um, yeah, people, it would always generate sales. This wasn't just like a game people would sit down, play, forget about. This was a game people were sitting down, playing, and then still talking about on Twitter days later. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's clearly got something and it convinced me that yeah uh, doing a comedy line isn't something to be ashamed of it isn't so certainly isn't something to feel like you're a lesser creator for it's just a different genre and if people are taking enjoyment out of it why not expand it to do to go back to the western to do a game like blazing saddles yeah uh because people find that kind of thing amusing and sometimes games need to be fun and not just bleak introspective horror you, there's also the idea of camp. There's also the idea of camp 
as well, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, kind of a big part of they came from beneath the sea. And, you know, this this hypothetical Western would obviously have um, some pretty interesting uh, camp concepts integrated with it. Um, I I think it's, you know, kind of in our DNA when we look at these things, you know, Um, you know, when we look at some of those older film genres, you know, whereas when they first came out, they were deadly serious, you know, Uh, like uh, them. And you know the uh, the uh, you know various horror movies or various um, you know westerns that were seen as as bloody and and oh my god this is so frightening but or or you know shocking but looking back at it now it's a, di- a little bit of a different lens and it allows you to explore some of those campy aspects which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I, um, you mentioned them exclamation mark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it came from beneath the sea, of course. The namesake. Uh, these games are pl- these games. These movies are played straight. Even Plan Nine from Outer Space yeah, yeah. is played with a straight <laughs> face, but that doesn't mean it's not amusing. And that's kind of what they came from beneath the sea does as well. It's um, a game where the characters don't think the things that are going on are funny. It's the players that think it's amusing <laughs> that these characters are going through such hell. Uh, but it's where you can play a game and not feel ashamed of the fact that your character is being dragged through the mill because it's entertaining. Yeah. yeah. That's excellent. Um, so I, I know, because I signed up for one, you're going to be running a few sessions of They Came From Beneath the Sea at Midwinter. Yes, uh, I will. Can we expect to see uh, maybe uh, the scenarios that you're running there and others be to be published as well? So get some scenario books out for it. There is a scenario book coming out actually, Excellent. and uh, it is Tales of Aquatic Terror. Uh, I, I always forget because we have uh, so we've got Heroic Land Dwellers coming out. We've got. Uh, the Book of Aquatic Horrors, I think it might be. And then we got Tales of Aquatic Terror. I should know I'm developing these books. Uh, <laughs> but, the, but Aquatic Horror, uh, no, it's not Aquatic Horror and Aquatic Terror. It's something like that. Um, horrors from the Deep. Um, but either way, yes. Uh, Tales Excellent. of Aquatic Terror is much like Let the Streets Run Red. It's got four distinct scenarios in, and uh, they each cover a very different type of story. One is on board a cruise line, and that's quite fun. It's a cross-Atlantic uh, cruise ship uh, where you um, basically get boarded uh, by by aliens and have to survive the, the journey. And again, much like with everything and They Came From Neath the Sea, and all credit to the writers on this, the writers put so much effort into making sure that this content can be played completely seriously and horrifically. And Aquatapilla, I always use the Aquatapilla as the example, monster, is um, the kind of thing that you could picture in a B-movie, a monstrous caterpillar writhing and shambling up from the water and devouring people it crawls across. Now, in a really crappy B-movie, you can probably see where the pieces of rubber are hanging off its costume. You can probably see the feet of the people walking around underneath the pantomime caterpillar outfit. But just as easily, that monster is statted up, indeed, to be a genuine threat. Yes, it's slow. Yes, it's it could probably be driven back into the sea with grenades. But if it's coming up on 
bathers who don't have grenades and maybe the elderly and maybe children that a caterpillar is going to devour people and that means it's it can be as horrific as you want the humor can be taken or, or left in but i recommend leaving it in um just because people need a little more fun in their lives in terms of what i will be running at midwinter i tend to run games of my own devising at uh, conventions uh, rather than running books out of uh, running scenarios out of books not because i don't like to but because i my improvisational need is such that i kind of assess the players at the table and then i come up with a plot over the course of about three minutes and then we just go from there (laughs) that may sound lazy but that's just how my gm mind tends to work now i I can certainly appreciate that after all the games we ran at pax unplugged there were elements of needing to improv a good chunk of the session because of player actions so yeah (laughs) you will definitely encounter crabs seaweed and probably a couple of gill folk. Excellent. Uh, crabs are my go-to creature. Crabs and lobster people, because uh, everyone loves the idea of the the crab folk being underwater communists that <laughs> wear human suits but can only walk sideways. They're incredibly productive, and they want to unionize uh, everyone. <laughs> but but their main issue is when they talk, you can kind of see their mandibles and yeah, they can only walk sideways unless they're putting in a lot of effort. So their, their costumes don't hold up for very long. That's my, that's, that's my next cosplay. Excellent. So you're going to, you're going to wear that to PAX East. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to wear that PAX East as I'm, as I'm running games. So I'm going to perfect. Yep. Perfect. Crabs of the world unite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to have a, uh, a Karl Marx uh, shirt over my, my crab loids. Yeah, crab marks. I can yeah. go for that. <laughs> um, okay, so let's let's switch gears here for for a second. And go into another game. I know that that we mentioned and talked about folk horror. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Solemn Vale. I know that that you were speaking with Ravnos last time about this a little bit. Um, mm. You describe it as a folk horror game. Um, particularly, what does the concept of folk folk horror mean to you? Uh, so folk horror tends to mean isolation uh, and being surrounded by hostile environment forces or people. Uh, it, there's a sense of the alien to it and the historic. So good genre examples. I mentioned The Wicker Man already, uh, but pretty much any movie by Ben Wheatley, or at least his early uh, movies, things like Kill List, uh, Field in England, uh, are very folk horror-like. If you picture the archetypal story, uh, The League of Gentlemen, which is a BBC comedy series, uh, not the uh, Alan Moore comic, where you have characters, and this happens in horror quite often, as we know. Even Texas Chainsaw Massacre, in fact, is a bit folk horror. Where your car breaks down, you go to the house, it's full of weirdos who have their own rituals and practices. You then have to survive the night and get out. And it's very basic. That is folk horror if they have the rituals, if they have the ties to history, if this land has always been our land. Uh, and you can, yeah, you can do it in rural America. Uh, but Solemn Vale <laughs> is very much based on in the southwest corner of Britain. 
where people are still quite uh well, not all people, but there are still quite a lot of people who are very traditional, who believe in the traditional ways, and uh, don't like outsiders, much like many rural communities have always been. And in Solemn Vale, Solemn Vale is the town in which the game is primarily set, but there are scenarios all around it. We have a lovely map of Solemn Vale and its environs, from everything from the disused mines, to the cliffsides and the smugglers' caves, to the forests where pagans used to sacrifice people, and the pagans are of course still around, uh, to the old train station that was closed down about ten years ago, uh, and <clears throat> all kinds of lovely, weird, wonderful, archetypally English countryside horror. So that is what folk horror is, and that's what Solemn Vale is, as a setting, anyway. It's a really cool setting, and so there's a lot of different ways that you could take that. Um, that that's interesting. And, and, and having um, Solemn Vale exist either in England or, or anywhere else, is, it, is, it, is that kind of the idea, or is it strictly... Solemn Vale is is very much ingrained in in kind of a a, a British um, setting. Oh, I think you could probably say in Appalachia, yeah, or the bio, or bio, bio, uh, without much difficulty. Yeah. Uh, but no as written, yeah, as written, it is uh, very much English. Um, but luckily, there's lots of media there. If you are unfamiliar with uh, the English countryside, you can quite easily find out what that's like. Excellent. I mean, I grew up there, and I turned out all right. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Uh, <laughs> there's a reason you write uh, horror RPGs. Yeah. Uh, um, what, what's the... What does the system for Solemnville look like? Uh, it has its own proprietary system, uh, the weird system. And in brief, and this is, I guess, the chief gimmick of the the system for Solemnville, you have what amounts to a doom track to, for every single character. If you're familiar with the old Arkham games, most, in fact, uh, Cthulhu games have a sort of doom track to them. And... Um, your character can keep taking chances, keep pushing their weird, keep, uh, I guess, it's basically your interaction with magic, with uh, supernatural foes, and you can keep getting more and more successes and basically winning. But by doing so, you're pushing yourself closer and closer to succumbing to the weird and that might mean quite literally you become the axe-wielding maniac at the end of the story like in a movie that's awesome uh where it may mean that you have to become the sacrifice at the end because you're the most special you're the person most invested with the weird uh it's a game that is specifically designed to emulate that kind of movie where there will always be at least one person that is dead at the end of it and we're not trying to make it like Call of Cthulhu where everyone's got to die or everyone's got to go mad. And I say that in a vaguely mocking tone. Uh, I write, I've written for Chaosium and Cubicle 7 on Call of Cthulhu as well. I love Call of Cthulhu. I run. I'm running it right now. Uh, but the main issue I have with Call of Cthulhu, or at least the way a lot of people run it, is that they feel the need to kill everyone or make them yeah. go mad yeah. at the end of every session. And that's played out. It's been done. Yeah. Um, and Solemn Vale, and I think you can do a lot 
with fantastic things with Call of Cthulhu, especially 7th edition. But Solemn Vale very much goes for the movie quality where, yeah, one character, at least one character, is doomed. And the rest of the players can be quite antagonistic. <laughs> you know, their, their characters can kind of force channel that into one of the characters. Uh, you know, you keep making that one take the risks. And when it looks like they're succumbing, we'll chop the head off. <laughs> um, so not that that will necessarily stop him. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but yes, it was it was great fun to write and develop. Uh, uh, all of the authors, I think, bar maybe one, are British on Solemn Vale. And it's just... Uh, oh, oh, except for lots of the scenarios we got. We've got loads of scenarios for it, which is fantastic. Oh, so, yeah, uh, I believe Mark Kelly, the owner of Dirty Vortex and frequent artist for Onyx Path, is planning on doing a Kickstarter in the early part of 2020. Excellent. So, yeah, that, we, we shall see. Like Hopefully, a, it will go well. That was going to be my next question: is when we could hope to see it. So that is fantastic. I know I will 100% be backing that. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in there, though, uh, reminded me a lot of Cult um, to a degree, um, it, particularly the Summit. Um, yeah, and I'm <laughs> wondering. Uh, where obviously a lot of it's from film and uh, to me there's a lot of crossover there in terms of movies like um let us pray um mm. which you could see as a very um from how you've described it solemn veil style game or a very cult style game um do you pull a lot of your inspiration for the writing you do there's a question in here i promise um do you pull <laughs> a lot of your inspiration or these things from film and uh, last time we spoke we talked about J.G. Uh, Ballard and the, the, some of your favorite writers um, do, do you tend to pull from film or do you pull from particularly in Britain there are there's a lot of legends and folklore that you could pull from um, for some of these things gosh I suppose I do a bit of everything uh, movies are very important to me I've always been a big cinephile I've, I've, uh, again, it's a very obvious thing to say, but I love the cinema. I love movies, and I'm I don't restrict myself to a particular genre. I guess I'm a bit cinema snobbish in that I don't tend to see big uh, blockbusters as a general rule. They kind of leave me cold. But I I love a a well written story with fantastic characters, and um. When, especially when it comes to horror. Uh, so what some of my issues with horror, I guess horror cinema, is there's an awful lot of repetition. Yeah, and I yeah. imagine there always has been. It, do, it doesn't matter. A lot of people these day, will say, these days it's all about jump scares, it's all about found footage. And uh, although even the found footage is kind of on the wane, uh, but before then it was all about... Uh, explosive gore and before yep. then it was all about slashes yep. it was always about all about something yep. uh, but you can always find excellent quality in there you know it's always about finding the diamonds in the rough and when it comes to horror i think you want to pull on things for the most part that people can relate to and i agree with sandy peterson of Call of Cthulhu fame, that Call of Cthulhu 
actually works best if you set it in the contemporary era, not in yep. 1920s. I agree. Because people want to be scared of things they can relate to. And a lot of horror movies, the really good ones, things like The Babadook, which is a fantastic movie, of course, of the last decade. Uh, let's think of some others. Um, so maybe some uh, of Ari, Ari Aster's work, like Hereditary and um, I knew you were going to bring those up. <laughs> yeah, no, no, th those are those are brilliant. Those unsettling mm -hmm. movies that yeah. they don't always have to be disgusting. They don't have yeah. to make you want to turn them off, but they leave your skin a bit prickly and you're yeah. not sure whether you're enjoying it or not. Yeah, uncomfortable. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, now there's excellent literature too. I'm by no means. Uh, a wide reader when it comes to modern literature, but when it comes to, I guess, vintage horror, uh, well, Stephen King, of course, is fantastic. James Herbert, I think, is brilliant from a very pulpy perspective, but he does do some excellent horror, uh, some horrific scenes, and I recommend that James Herbert novels are the most accessible. They have horror, they have erotica, they have suspense in and thrills and he's a British author, dead now sadly very recently, or in the last few years, but very good catalogue. Um, but going further back, M.R. James is a brilliant British author of uh, short um, ghost stories. Most of his stories are ghost stories or spiritual stories. The most famous one is Whistle and I'll Come to You and his stories are always about someone who it will be something like this person goes to stay at a uh, at an inn while he's still on a cycling tour around denmark and uh, in fact this is one of his stories he will um go upstairs see on his key ring that he's room number 12 and he'll see room number 13 isn't there next to him is room number 14 and he'll go to bed and then he'll be woken up in the night by screaming and hammering on the walls and things like that and he'll go next door and knock on the uh the door to room number 13 which suddenly he'll realize is there and he'll think oh shit what's in here and he'll duck back into his room and the noise will continue and he'll feel threatened eventually the guy from room number 14 will knock on his door and say, well, we keep the noise down because room number 13 has disappeared. What was there? No one knows. That kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's traditional ghost stories. It's the old, she thought it was her dog licking her hand, but really it was <laughs> the serial killer that had escaped from the asylum. That's the ghost story or horror story everyone is told when they're mm. around eight or nine years old. <laughs> um, you can definitely draw from that from horror for horror and especially for folkish horror when you're along the ghost and escaped um criminal type but i still think for me movies tv shows tv show on netflix right now black summer mm. uh, which is yep. a prequel uh, kind of a prequel to z nation which is a very camp asylum uh, zombie series cancelled now but Black Summer isn't camp in the slightest. It is just pure horror. Uh, is just really enjoyable. And I was watching that and I was thinking, wow, there's ideas in this that I've never incorporated in a zombie game. And I thought I had really tapped all I could for zombie horror because uh, I've run lots of zombie-focused games. I love the original Resident Evil games. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, all of a sudden something new comes along. 
So yeah, movies, TV shows, literature, I will I'll steal from anyone. <laughs> excellent. Well, I hope you keep keep stealing from excellent content then. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I've got to try. Uh, I'll try and avoid that uh what was it? Night flyers. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I know people Wait, love the about George the... R. R. Martins. Was it with Night Flyers? Was it the the vampire on a plane? No, no. Well, no. it should be. Uh, <laughs> no, it was some god awful sci fi series with some very inexplicable husk babies. Yeah, one. Um, yeah, anyway, George Spore Arbor, Baby. Right? That was it. That was it George was. Arbor, yeah. yeah, the book was, but yeah, the TV <laughs> series. No idea how much he had to do with it, but I think yeah. it's been cancelled after the first season. I thankfully, so. yeah, I hope so. Jeez. Um, Okay, well, I have one more question for you, and then I will allow Marchosius to ask anything else he has. Um, but kind of piggybacking off of all of that, uh, what else um, can we expect to see? Are you Do you have any other projects in the works that uh, we can look forward to in the near future? Mm, anything else I can talk about? That's the big question. It always it's is. It's odd. And around this time, of, right now, this time of year, I know of a lot of things that I'm working on, and I know of very few that I can talk about. I can t- say this though: I've uh, co-wrote, I co-wrote uh, Vampire the Masquerade Heritage, the board game, and uh, and Blood Feud, and Chapters. Excellent. And I feel like I may have contributed something to Vendetta, but I really can't remember now, which is bad, isn't it? It's bad. Uh, <laughs> but I so I won't say that for definite but the the other three i have and i'm not going to recommend all of them because that's just silly it's gratuitous but uh, i think if you're a vampire the masquerade fan you should be feeling very happy about this coming year oh yeah because there is a lot of content that is going to be hitting your doorstep and probably starting with chicago by night uh we know that there was a delay on getting them shipped it was unfortunately not within our power i uh, can't go into much more detail than that but uh, it we have had them dispatched as soon as we could uh, and yeah uh, i know people got a chance to look at the finished version at uh, pax unplugged and we're very happy with it yep but yeah, the um, it won't be long before books are being sent to addresses, thankfully. And then, excellent. Yeah, we've got um, Chicago photos that the streets run red, cults of the blood gods, everything Modifius is doing, and all the board games and the video games. So yeah, I think it's a very good time to be a vampire fan. Definitely. Well, the only question that I would have um, is actually from uh, my wife. She, we were watching the last interview, and she's like, "Man, I can I can listen to this guy talk forever." Um, and this is this is kind of a common sentiment. And I've asked you on Twitter before, and I guess I'm going to ask you um, again on the stream: Are there plans for you to do an audiobook? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, that that would be nice. Uh, I I certainly have the. I know, I know that I have the uh, linguistic skill. Uh, sure. I don't know uh, the pronunciation <laughs> and enunciation to be able to do audiobooks, to do long reads. Uh, I did a little bit of it, in fact, 
on the Onyx Path channel for the YouTube channel for the first couple of chapters of the Scarred Lands novel, Vigilant, just yep. to see how that would land. And it actually landed very well. But in terms of Vampire, a lot of people have in fact asked me, hey, you know, when are you going to do Becca's Jihad Diary as an audiobook? You can even do voices. And I can. I'm fairly good at doing voices. But I don't think I could do the, quite that many. Uh, there's something like... <laughs> Probably something like 720 characters in Beckett's Jihad. So, um, either way, what it would ultimately take is a company like Paradox wanting me to do it and paying me to do it. It's not really an Onyx Path venture. We don't do audiobooks. Uh, doing an audio role playing game is, again, it's something like, let's say, Scion Trinity or They Came from Beneath Sea. It's not completely out of this world as a proposition. Uh, but we would need to see a lot of interest for it before we went and invested in something like that. So, yeah, um, not something I'm adverse to, but uh, I think someone's got to come to me rather than the other way around. Absolutely. Well, maybe maybe we can have you on again and maybe just read a, a small selection of certain things. We'll have a Matthew Dawkins <laughs> story time. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, Nick, I, I wanna... it can't be worse than Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we can get you to do deaf poetry, we can. Well, maybe I can get you to read uh, Good Night Moon. Um, exactly. My kids would love it. Um, I want to thank you so so much for for coming on and and 100%. letting us barrage you with all of these questions and giving so much information. Um, I want to give you a second to kind of plug what you need to plug. Where What is the most important thing that you want people to, to go to right now? Well, there's two, and I've mentioned them already, but for anyone yeah. who is still watching at this point, obviously there's Cults of the Blood Gods. It's currently on Kickstarter. If the link isn't there in the chat, just type Cults of the Blood Gods into Google, and the Kickstarter will pop up. Uh, and as mentioned, we have over two weeks to go. We've already crossed a hundred thousand dollars and it's just stretch goals from here on out we are you know we are making books so please help us fund more um this book will already be going into retail based on what we funded so that was our goal and we managed to hit it within an hour excellent awesome yeah so everything else is just gravy Uh, in terms of uh, other books uh, again i can't say enough but they came from beneath the sea is a game I conceived, and uh, when now it's nearly p- published, I've completed the second proof of it. So it's just down to Rich to give it the go ahead before we send the final PDF or the PDF pre errata off to backers, and we'll get the errata in, we'll incorporate it, and then we'll print the damn thing and uh, and the various cards that go with it. But that means there's not much long, well, not much longer to to back it. So do type in "they came from beneath the sea," back a kit into Google, and back it if you haven't already. Whether it's for PDF or a hard copy, you will not be disappointed. It is a game that a lot of writers poured a lot of love into, and I think it's turned out really well. Pretty fantastic. And I just dropped a link to that in chat. And so did Marchosius. <laughs> Thank Same you very time. much. As well as, of course, um, www.matthewdawkins.com, a link to oh, yeah, our YouTube channel. And uh, people can find you on Twitter at clack, click, bang. Although I'm sure most yeah. people know that already. Yeah. 
Uh, Although now, I don't know whether everyone knows why it's clack click bang. Is that dice and guns? I don't know. What is that? <laughs> um. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I just set myself up to tell a story. You really did. <laughs> Maybe the first, some of the first role playing I did. No, I can't remember the first role playing I did online. But some of the first sort of major time invested role playing I did online and sort of play by post was on Live Journal in a community called the JLA Watchtower. It was a DC uh, Heroes RPG. It was all free form, no dice rolling, and players could have up to 10 characters i think you could uh, couldn't have more than five heroes or five villains and one of my first characters in it was uh, the green arrow villain onomatopoeia <laughs> uh, who is a very much a c-string villain until kevin smith introduced onomatopoeia into batman a few years back yep. and um but i was playing onomatopoeia when onomatopoeia was new i was a hipster like that <laughs> <laughs> now on live journal you created usernames user ids for your uh, characters or for your accounts and so i had green arrow i had him as battling underscore bowman battling bowman and f i had the flash who was 10x speed of light uh, and for onomatopoeia who only spoke in onomatopoeia onomatopoeia noises their one was clack, click, bang, which was supposed to be the cocking and firing of a gun. Nice. And it was every other player of that community really loved what I did with that character more than anyone else just thought, wow, you've actually made Onomatopoeia a serious character in in this game. And I ended up playing it for years. And uh, despite all the communications basically being Onomatopoeia. And so my YouTube channel is youtube.com slash user slash clack click bang. My Twitter was clack click bang. And I was probably clack click bang in a bunch of other places, but before I was the gentleman gamer, I was clack click bang, and so that's just held on uh, through to today. So there you go. Excellent. Well, that's awesome. Now, now we've all learned a little bit more about you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, again, to echo Marchosius, thank you so much for joining us yet again. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. But yeah, no, again, thank you so much, Matthew, for joining us. Uh, yes, thank I know you. It is thank you for having me. Getting pretty late there, so we will let you go. And thank you, everyone, for joining us, and stay tuned. We will be back, I am sure, speaking with Matthew Dawkins again at some point in the future. Bye. 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 <laughs> thank you for listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast. You can find us online at GehennaGaming.com on Twitter at Gehenna Gaming, twitch.tv slash Gehenna Gaming, and patreon.com slash Gehenna Gaming. <laughs>